Welcome to A Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian, and I'm happy to be here in studio with our senior pastor, Scott Richards. Hey, everybody. How you doing, sir? Doing fantastic. Happy Monday. We're glad you're joining us here on A Reason for Hope. This is a weekday Bible answer program where we take questions from our live stream audience about the Bible, about the Christian worldview, about the reasonableness of faith, and whether or not uh, we can trust the historic Christian faith as a true and living faith that uh, uh, we can uh, apply to our lives. So if you have a specific scripture or something in the Bible that uh, has uh, boggled your mind, or perhaps you just want a little insight on how to apply it to your life, uh, please tune in and ask us a question. We would love to be able to minister to you through God's Word. And if you want to do so, and this is the first time you've ever come across a reason for hope you can do so multiple ways you can uh, join us on facebook we live stream there simultaneously to youtube just go to facebook.com search for calvary christian fellowship or you can go straight to our link which is on the screen for those of you watching uh, facebook.com forward slash ccf tucson you can also catch us on youtube just search for a reason for hope on youtube and you'll find our channel if you see that little red icon with the white dove then you'll know you're in the right place uh, you can also uh, just, again, just type in the URL, our YouTube channel, uh, domain name is youtube.com forward slash the at symbol, a reason for hope, 546. If you want to avoid social media altogether, you can just go straight to our website, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. That's calvarychristianfellowship.com is the name of the website. And then just hit the uh, watch live tab. And not only can you watch this program every Monday through Friday, you can also tune in to our services. We live stream our Wednesday evening Oasis service at 6.30 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, as well as our three morning services on Sunday mornings. I'd encourage you to tune in. Currently, we are going through the book of Ezekiel on Wednesday evenings, and on Sunday mornings, we're going through the book of Acts. Not only can you tune in, but there's a little question box. You can leave your questions. You can make comments. You can even click the little prayer request button if you want our prayer team to engage in a little prayer on your behalf. So I'd encourage you to take advantage of that if you have not yet. And if you're part of our community, I also encourage you to download our app. You can do all the things I just described. You can uh, join chat groups, create chat groups. You can keep up to date on our events here on campus, as well as many of the home groups that are taking place in our community. It includes a digital Bible where you can highlight texts, leave notes for yourself, Kind of like having the real thing, a paper Bible, but uh, all digital. So if you like the convenience of that, as well as being connected with our community, I'd encourage you to download that app on the, uh, the Apple or Google Play Store. Now, if you like to watch our services and you have a smart device like Roku or Amazon Fire products, you can add our channel to that as well. If you want to leave a question for us uh, a little more privately, you can do so by just emailing us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope all letters, no numbers, at gmail.com. Lastly, I'd like to encourage you to follow our senior pastor on the X platform, formerly Twitter, and you can do so by following him at ScottR4H. That's at ScottR4H. Not only is it very in, uh, an informative um, Twitter feed, but you can leave questions for this program there as well. We've had a few individuals um, leave us questions there and we will get to them uh, even if we don't get to them in that specific program that day we keep a catalog of all the questions we could ask whether they be emailed to us or if they are <coughs> uh, just posted as a comment if we don't get to it we keep track of them and we will get to the question which may be frustrating but that does encourage you to kind of tune in every day so <laughs> uh, before we get to the news of the day especially what has been going on over the weekend concerning Israel and Bible prophecy uh, we'd like to take a moment to pray and then we'll get to your questions absolutely Lord thanks so much that we have this opportunity to be able to welcome your presence on this program today Lord uh, without you and without you speaking to our hearts without you leading and guiding us into all truth through the ministry of your spirit we are spinning our wheels here we pray that with all the things we're going to be talking about going on in the world with all of the uh, questions that might come up uh, whether they're philosophical or theological or scriptural we pray that we would uh, just have a dogged determination 
to bring the focus back to you, Lord, your person, your work, your death, and your resurrection for us. Thank you, Lord, that uh, we can have this opportunity to be able to grow deeper in our understanding of how you love us and how you desire to work within our life. Father, may Jesus be glorified. May your spirit guide us into all truth. At the end of this, may we be transformed by the work of your word within us into more and more of the image and likeness of Jesus than we've ever been before. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, what do you have for us? Uh, uh, Boy, last week you, you mentioned the suppose the ceasefire that we had that got kind of <laughs> canceled out by Hamas, but... Uh... Yeah, well, uh, very interesting uh, insight into the ceasefire and why it was canceled out. Uh, you remember uh, we talked about how Israel and Hamas had come to loggerheads uh, about uh, the uh, idea of releasing certain hostages and uh, that uh, Israel had demanded the release of all of the women hostages being held. Uh, we tied that into the uh, murder of uh, four different Israelis that took place at a bus station in South Jerusalem by two admitted and uh, accepted agents of Hamas. Hamas said that they were truly ours, were acting on our behalf. Uh, over uh, 11 others uh, injured. Uh, we still don't know about the four in the hospital that were in critical condition, what their condition is. Haven't seen any updates on that. But we felt that since Hamas, during a ceasefire, dispatched two of uh, their goons, if you will, to uh, kill innocent Jews, whether you're in Gaza or out, that constituted an uh, irretrievable breach of the ceasefire and that Israel was going to respond to all of that. Well, Israel's response apparently through diplomatic channels, through Gutter and Turkey and some of the other intermediaries have been involved, was to demand the release of all women hostages still being held by Hamas. That uh, constituted a group of about 39 women, by the way, oh, wow. that are still being held. Uh, a couple of them American citizens, by the way. Hmm. Hamas refused. And when Hamas refused this request, then, as they say, it was on like Donkey Kong. The uh, uh, military operations uh, began. Uh, they are proceeding uh, into the uh, area uh, largely of the city of Canyonis, which is a Hamas stronghold. Incredible military bombardment happening there. Hamas has responded by uh, launching an unprecedented volley of their rockets, uh, particularly directed towards the Tel Aviv area, which apparently have been intercepted. But uh, the, the big question came up, why, of all things, was the release of the women prisoners, when you still you know, had 90-some uh, men and children prisoners you could still hold on to for whatever leverage uh, you wanted to have as far as uh, keeping Israel's uh, attacks, in a sense, on a leash, why would that be the deal breaker? Well, the answer came from an unlikely source today. The United States State Department uh, has uh, revealed why Hamas has not uh, released uh, these women hostages. Uh, according to a uh, report uh, by Barack Ravid, uh, State Department spokesman Matthew Miller says, it seems the reason Hamas refused to release all the women who had held hostage was because the terror group did not want them to tell what they went through while in captivity in Gaza. Now, let that sink in for just a second. Miller's comment quickly drew ire uh, from pro-Hamas figures on social media, many of whom accused him of lying. Apparently, it's just impossible to believe the same barbarians who filmed themselves murdering and mutilating people on October 7th would dare rape anyone. Never mind that the videos from the initial massacre showed clear signs of women being raped, including an infamous video showing a woman being paraded around, barely able to walk with bloodstains on her genitals. Documentation was also found in instructing Hamas fighters to rape women, uh, while fighters who were captured testified to that effect. 
Then there's a direct testimony from survivors who said they witnessed rapes taking place at the music festival that became the centerpiece of the attack. Still, no amount of evidence ever seemed to be enough for the pro-Palestinian crowd because they see everything through the insane prison of intersectionalism. Hamas can't be seen or treated as vicious oppressors. Rather, they must be coddled as supposedly the oppressed. And we've talked a little bit about uh, this uh, foundation stone of Marxism and that there are only two categories of people in the world, the oppressor and the oppressed. The oppressor cannot do anything right in this worldview. Uh, oppressors are thoroughly and completely and irredeemably evil. The oppressed, on the other hand, can do no wrong. No matter what they do, it can be excused away mm. by a reaction to the patent evil that the oppressor brings to uh, the equation. Now, that probably sounded uh, pretty good when Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels were working out Das Kapital and uh, the, uh, the extrapolations of their particular theory. Lenin certainly seemed to believe in that particular uh, theory of the oppressed and the oppressor, and it justified everything that Stalin uh, and Mao and Pol Pot did uh, as far as their atrocities were concerned. So uh, when we see uh, this seeming uh, blind spot that people have, uh, at, le at least in our uh, mainstream media, as far as uh, academia, as far as people on campus, and uh, we see them turning a blind eye to these outrageous and uh, absolutely impeccably documented uh, examples of uh, brutality and rape and uh, genocide, admitted genocide going on, uh, it just seems like they, they just shuttled away by saying, well, they're the oppressed. They, they, they can't uh, be doing evil here. We have to blame this somehow on uh, Israel. Uh, the article describing the State Department report on the Red State uh, media site said uh, about this, it is a completely perverse worldview that leads large numbers of people, mostly Democrats, making excuses for terrorists, even as those terrorists continue to say that their goal is genocide. On Sunday, Representative Parmila Jayapal was asked specifically to condemn sexual violence carried out by Hamas. Instead, she danced around the subject, calling for a balanced approach to condemning Palestinian terrorism. Unfortunately, because of what has been done to women still in custody, it is unlikely they'll ever be voluntarily released or allowed to live if the IDF begins to close in on their location. Hamas survives only because of international protection from corrupt organizations like the United Nations, who, by the way, got called on the carpet uh, for uh, protecting and justifying and even being a part of hiding some of the hostages from the IDF as the IDF began to close in there. They denied they were a terrorist organization. Fascinating in the community response uh, area on the X platform, they were called out for falsifying that claim because they had been directly involved in facilitating the capture and uh, the continued concealment of hostages held in Israel. Uh, the uh, United Nations uh, is completely lost, in my mind, mm. uh, their credibility. So, uh, again, uh, the idea of these uh, individuals uh, being let loose again has become problematic in the least. Uh, where are those who are so concerned about believing women and speaking out against sexual violence? Uh, there was another major article that broke on the uh, Twitter, uh, the ex-formerly Twitter site, that has called out former First Lady Michelle Obama for refusing a direct request from an Israeli journalist to speak out against the sexual violence against women who, that has taken place in this matter. You, you might remember that Michelle Obama was very helpfully and vocally involved in speaking out against the kidnapping of uh, Nigerian women by the Muslim terrorist group Boko Haram. Mm -hmm. uh, but now the story seems to have shifted. She has gone into full silence mode. A lot of the reliable voices that we are used to uh, hearing speak out against crimes against women in uh, celebrity circles, in media circles, are also disturbingly silent. So, uh, you know, when, when we see uh, this uh, going on, uh, I, it, it does 
uh, give us some insight into another really interesting uh, report uh, that our friend Amir Serfati has just posted. Uh, the uh, IDF is now uh, taking a different tactic in terms of dealing with the massive infrastructure that Hamas built, their terror tunnel system. A report in the Wall Street Journal, uh, and this is from Amir Serfati's uh, Telegram site, a report in the Wall Street Journal, Israel is trying to flood the Hamas tunnel network with seawater and thus destroy it. According to the report, Israel built a system of five large pumps north of the Shadi refugee camp, which it can then transfer thousands of cubic meters of water per hour into the tunnels and flood them within a few weeks. According to American officials, Israel notified the U.S. at the beginning of November about the project and completed its construction in mid-November. American officials told the newspaper that they do not know how close Israel is to completing the program and what it has finally decided in favor of using it. According to them, it is not clear how successful the plan will be since no one knows all the details of the tunnels and the land around them and how seawater will drain through the tunnels. They also added that there are American officials expressed concern about the program. The IDF refused to comment on the newspaper's inquiry regarding the project, but stated that they are working up a variety of methods to dismantle Hamas's capabilities. Well, one of the reasons that the idea of flooding the tunnels or, uh, you know, just completely blowing up the tunnels or sealing tunnels on both sides so that uh, air can't get into the tunnels was obviously predicated on what? Trying to defend or protect the hostages. Mm -hmm. It seems like what we are seeing more and more in, in all of this, and we warned you about this last week, is that it does not look good as far as any of those hostages ever being released. I think they will end up um, being killed by Hamas, and now we have a pretty good understanding of why. If any of these hostages are allowed to go back to freedom and speak about the horrible atrocities that were done in the name of Allah by Hamas, uh, then Hamas loses what I believe, and this is the one thing we really want to uh, encourage you all to understand, that Hamas's goal in all of this, initiating this battle, wasn't to, as they say, uh, take over the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Temple Mount. They knew, right, that this was never going to happen. What was the goal in mind? The goal behind all of this was, I believe, a very cynically crafted public relations battle for hearts and minds that originated in Tehran. I believe the Iranians, and you know, adjust your tinfoil hats accordingly, but I think there's a lot of facts on the ground that would back up this point of view. The Iranians realized that the real battle is for hearts and minds, not for territory. If they could shift the world opinion completely against Israel mm -hmm. by provoking them into this kind of an attack against Hamas, and then turning the tables by saying, oh, look at these, these terrible, uh, horrible things that are being done to these innocent Palestinians that are going on here. Well, if the UN, uh, you know, the P5 uh, nations, the power group behind all of that, uh, joins Iran in seeing Israel as the problematic actor in this set of circumstances, well, then the collapse of Israel uh, would be as inevitable as the collapse of South Africa when uh, world opinion united around mm -hmm. apartheid. You cut off all kinds, of, all economic uh, lifelines. You cut off all military alliances. Uh, Israel becomes isolated. They then become easy pickings for the Iranian Republican Guard Corps to come down using proxies, say, like Hezbollah, and others at first, but also wanting the glory themselves of being able to reclaim the Temple Mount. Mm. I believe that was the inevitable end game. But there's one thing you can always count on, is that evil always overplays its hand. Uh, you see this constantly in the world. You know, in World War II, for instance, in uh, Hitler's book Mein Kampf, he talked about the foolishness of trying to fight on two fronts at once. Well, at one point, uh, following his own advice, he had uh, what were called uh, the Wannsee-Ribbentrop Protocols, uh, 
that allowed them to be able to look at Russia as uh, either neutral or, or a potential ally. Stalin's Russia just said, you know, you leave us alone, you can do whatever you want with Western Europe. Uh, well, uh, you know, again, Hitler got too big for his britches and initiated an invasion of Russia. He thought he could cause Russia to collapse before the Russian winter kicked in uh, with his blitzkrieg techniques and so on. But he overplayed his hand, got bogged down, went through the Russian winter, the Russian winter and the dog determination of the Russian soldiers there, the Soviet armies, the Red Army, eventually re, uh, reversed the tide of the war. That was a huge turning point. Well, in the same way, the mad mullahs in Tehran, I think, have overplayed their hand. They believed that they could win the public relations battle that was going on here. But the more we begin to see revealed uh, the absolute atrocities that were done. And uh, by the way, the embarrassing videos that uh, Iranian mullahs are putting online themselves saying that it is completely okay, according to the Quran, to rape women as spoils of war that there is nothing un-Islamic about this. This is too much even for the jaded sensibilities of the West. And, uh, you know, you see some of these uh, celebrities and notable persons like Michelle Obama trying to say, ah, I'm, I'm staying out of it. But we're also seeing some very unlikely individuals coming to the defense of Israel. Uh, you know, I, I, I thought maybe they fired up that uh, CERN atom smasher in Switzerland and caused an interloping of another alternative uh, <laughs> uh, universe to take place. But I have found over the last four days me being in hearty agreement with the assessment of individuals like Chuck Schumer, uh, the senator from New York, uh, and now John Fetterman. Uh, the controversially uh, uh, elected senator from Pennsylvania calling out uh, what he would consider the idiocy of people saying that Israel was uh, committing genocide. No, he's saying it's the other way around. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, for me to be in full agreement with Chuck Schumer and John Fetterman about almost anything uh, seems li like uh, I've entered the twilight yeah, zone. It's a bizarre world. <laughs> and, and yet, here we are. Uh, you know, I think when you see this beginning to happen, you see that, uh, say, within the left side of the aisle, the Democratic Party uh, of our nation, there is, in a sense, a civil war going on because you have the squad, as they are called, who are virulently pro uh, Islamic, uh, absolutely committed to standing on the side of Hamas, uh, again, uh, Congresswoman Tlaib uh, went so far as to lead a crowd in the uh, chanting of the slogan uh, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Well, free of what? Free in the same sense that uh, Germany used to say that uh, they needed to make their country Judenfrei, free of Jews. Mm -hmm. That's what they're talking <clears throat> about there. So once again, when we see this happening, we see evil overplaying its hand. We also see, I think, an example of what 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 refers to as the strong delusion of the last days. In a sense, it's almost a uh, mm. uh, uh, test drive, if you will, of how deep spiritual delusion is going to happen here. Uh, because you see individuals uh, who say politically were completely in favor of women's rights and say would uh, have protest marches about the bodily autonomy of women. We see these same individuals uh, promoting what was called the Me Too campaign, which took down some very prominent people in media and entertainment and so forth uh, for their horrific treatment uh, of women. Uh, we see these same individuals suddenly becoming mute mm -hmm. about these kind of atrocities. And there's, there's a phenomenon called cognitive dissonance. It's like when you know something's right, but you can't admit something is right. Uh, it is too important for you, uh, for your own you know, personal uh, uh, advancement to be able to admit something is right and something is wrong. And so you live in this tension uh, of trying not to take a good hard look at the things you're standing for. I believe cognitive dissonance is is spreading like a virus. Mm -hmm. Especially uh, when you have things like uh, 40,000, you know, the the since the overturning of Roe v. Wade, 
140,000 children have been saved from dismemberment, and these same individuals are up in arms because of this. At the same time, they're screaming and yelling that the, what Hamas is reporting is that some incubators may have been shut down when they took the power out in a hospital. I don't understand what, I mean, they, they don't see how do you, glaring How do you square that circle? <laughs> uh, you know, the other thing I wanted to mention is, uh, as far as overplaying your hand is concerned, over the weekend, uh, the uh, Houthi rebels in Yemen uh, got involved uh, with more uh, attacks on shipping that was going on uh, through the Gulf of Aqaba and the Red Sea. Uh, they even went so far as to uh, try to attack the uh, USS Kearney, the destroyer uh, that has been so effective in terms of taking out their drones and their ballistic missiles they've been attempting to launch at South Israel. They actually attacked a United States ship over the weekend. The last time that happened, something close to that happening took place. The United States responded by destroying all of the radar emplacements that the Houthi rebels had along the coast of Yemen. Hmm. Uh, the response of our military that I think we're going to see in the next day or so is going to be very, very strong hmm. to all of this. In fact, uh, our good friend Amar, uh, Amir Sarfati uh, reports on his Telegram page, there are reports of attacks in Sana, the capital of Yemen, right now. Oh, wow. So who's doing the attacking? What <clears throat> targets are being hit? I think this is probably a response to the USS Kearney being attacked mm. by the Houthi rebels and uh, essentially saying even to the ostensible government of Yemen that has tolerated the Houthi rebels to have half their country and, and do their thing in that half that country is you either take care of these people or we're going to take care of you. Uh, and, uh, you know, so things are heating up. All this just to say as far as uh, a prophetic significance is concerned, you know, you talk about wars and rumors of wars. You know, Jesus said that these things would increase in frequency and intensity as the time of his return draws near. Not just wars around the world, but specifically wars in relation to Israel. Uh, he also spoke of pestilences, earthquakes and famines in various places. These are the beginning of sorrows, things that would increase in frequency and intensity as the big day draws near. Uh, things have gotten to such a fever pitch as far as the wars and rumors of wars aspect of, uh, of Jesus' prophetic heavenly heads up that over the weekend in the Philippines, there was a 7.7 .7 on the Richter scale earthquake that uh, did incredible damage and loss of life uh, this morning, uh, just around 11 o'clock, there was an aftershock at 6.9 on the Richter scale, which is a huge, wow. huge earthquake. To put this in perspective, uh, the uh, Northridge earthquake that raised the San Gabriel Mountains three feet high and uh, almost destroyed uh, the city of Northridge in Southern California. Our own uh, Bo Willett and his wife barely got out with their lives as a result of that earthquake. That was a 6.7. Hmm. And every time you go up one-tenth, on the Richter scale, it doesn't mean it's one-tenth stronger. It means it's double. Yeah. So uh, try to imagine that. And no one's paying attention. It's like, wow. oh, wow, that's kind of interesting. So uh, is God trying to get our attention? Oh, you bet he is. And uh, I think those who know their Bibles and understand the prophetic picture uh, are going to understand that uh, these things uh, really do have to happen and uh, that it is our job as believers in Christ, understanding what God says about the future destiny of Israel in the last days, uh, that God is going to use Israel again to touch the entire world uh, with his truth. Uh, we are already seeing uh, over 1 million Jews out of 17 million in the world identifying as Messianic, this, this incredible move of God's Spirit among the Jewish people. Uh, we're also seeing, uh, conversely, in some ostensibly Christian circles, an incredible hatred of the Jews, uh, a rise again of what is called replacement theology, uh, preterism that says, no, 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 all these prophetic things were already fulfilled in the past. We're already in the kingdom, gang. And all the promises in the Old Testament that God made to the Jewish people have been spiritualized and given to the church. Uh, you know, I think that is dangerous 
theology. Mm. I'm not saying you can believe those things and and not uh, divorce yourself from being a Christian. I think you can really be wrong on those issues and still be saved. But it's very interesting how even the tide in the church seems to be moving in an anti-Semitic mm. direction. Wow. And I don't think that's any accident that is going on here. Uh, you know, if you had told me uh, even five years ago that we would have gone through a pandemic that had completely shut down the United States, the economy caused churches to close, uh, so on, uh, I would have gone, whoa, you know, that's a pretty major heavenly heads up. Uh, if you had told me that Israel would get involved with a war uh, that was initiated by Hamas, that literally has no chance of succeeding, that is only there to try to galvanize world opinion against Israel. We know from passages like Zechariah chapter 12 that all nations of the world are going to be gathered against Jerusalem at, at mm -hmm. one point, that Jerusalem is going to be a cup of reeling, a, a cup that makes one so drunk they can't stand up, and a stumbling stone to many nations in the world. Well, that was, I believe, the end game of all of this. Mm -hmm. Now, whether the mad mullahs in Tehran are going, ooh, you know, I'm not sure uh, we're going to be able to pull this off, uh, they have no qualms whatsoever about sacrificing mm -hmm. all the members of Hamas. They spent two years planning this. Yeah. So they know, yeah. I mean, this is all planned. This is all part of the agenda. Yeah, and uh, suffice it to say, uh, as far as the leaders of Hamas are concerned, uh, the head of the Sheen Beit uh, Intelligence Agency said that wherever the leaders of Hamas are, they will be assassinated. Hmm. They say this is like Munich. Uh, that is referring to the Munich massacre that happened in the 1972 Olympics in Munich. Uh, the Israeli team was massacred by Black September, which was orchestrated and directed by Yasser Arafat, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, you know, everyone who was involved in that attack was eventually hunted down and killed by the Mossad. Well, when Israel makes a statement like that, I don't care how many billions of dollars you've got in the bank, if you're Ismail Haniyeh or any of these other leaders of Hamas, uh, you better be very careful. Because just because you're in gutter doesn't mean that the long arm of the Mossad and Shin Beit can't get at you at that time. And they have said, this is what we're going to do. You know, someone has told you what they're going to do, believe them, especially in this particular case. So, wow. So, well, lots of, to talk about. <laughs> yeah, speaking of Revelation, uh, Maggie gave us a question, and thanks. For, I don't know how. I don't know if we got it in an email or uh, maybe a leftover question from last week. But Maggie wanted to know about the Book of Revelation. I don't know if maybe I'm misinterpreting what you guys often say when you talk about Revelation, but at least to me, it all sounds very clear cut. Talking from human experience, however, often the thing I suspected to happen either doesn't or doesn't go all at all how I imagine it is, it is in my head. So what if the same happens with the events leading up to the tribulation? What if, theoretically, we don't see the events unfold the way we imagine they will? How can we be 100% sure if the Protestant interpretation of the book of Revelation is the most accurate one? What if the events are already happening but very, very slowly that we just no longer notice because of just how used to this world we've become? And then she has a side question we can get to afterwards. But uh, so uh, I guess what well, she's asking is how do we know that our interpretation of the Book of Revelation, which seems very clear cut, she admits, but uh, what if we're completely wrong and things are happening completely differently than how we imagine them to happen? Yeah, well, you know, first of all, as far as uh, your statement, Maggie, uh, about uh, the, the nature of things and uh, how things can be happening behind the scenes so subtly we don't realize they're going on. I, I am a complete adherent of the frog in the kettle theory. Uh, you know, when it comes to, say, societal collapse morally, uh, even the collapse of the church spiritually, uh, you know, if Satan just did the full frontal assault, you know, if he showed up looking like a refugee from an underwood deviled ham can and said, I'm going to lead you all astray and uh, introduce, uh, uh, you know, really destructive theologies and interpretations of the Bible, they're going to leave everybody confused. We go, no, 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 get away from me, Satan. But if he can do it subtly, if he can do it through even, uh, I, I guess, in a sense, bringing a divide uh, that is so deep that even the term evangelical Christian seems to have lost all of its meaning, uh, where you have progressive 
quote-unquote evangelicals who want to overlay their political uh, agendas and underpinnings uh, upon the teaching of God's word to the point where you're justifying gay marriage, uh, for instance, Mm -hmm. and saying it's something that is holy and pleasing to God. Well, you've got to ignore the clear teaching of God's word and embrace some really convoluted and obscure interpretations of God's word to actually get to that particular point. So what causes people to do that sort of thing? Well, you know, let's face it, Maggie, uh, when it comes to perceiving life, one thing that we've all got to admit is that we're all biased. You know, we all look at life through certain lenses. Uh, You got bias, I got bias, all God's children got bias. And so as we approach God's word, there needs to be a important quality uh, called humility that, that causes us to come as close as we possibly can to understanding what the Bible actually says. And this is why humility, I think, is so important. You know, uh, in the book of Isaiah, God said, uh, the, uh, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me or where will be the, my resting place? But on this one will I look. The one who loves mercy, uh, the one who does justly, and the one who trembles at my word. Mm. Now, that idea of trembling at God's word means that when we come to the Bible, we look at it not as man's word about God, but God's word about man. Mm. And there's two different ways, Maggie, that you can look at the Bible. You can come to the Bible and say, I am going to accept the Bible based upon what it claims about itself. Uh, First of all, the Bible claims to be truth. Jesus said in John 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Now that point, what Jesus was referring to were the 39 books that we would consider to be the Old Testament. Okay, so Jesus makes that statement there. In the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 3, and verse 16, the Apostle Paul said, All Scripture, the word pasa in Greek literally means each and every one, not some, not the red letters in your Bible, all Scripture is inspired by God. The word inspired is the word theopneustos. It literally means God-breathed. It's just as much God's Word. Uh, if you want to use this analogy, as if we were standing in the same room with God as he spoke these words and were close enough to him to actually feel his breath as he parsed them out. That is the level of inspiration that the Bible claims for itself. It doesn't say it contains God's truth. Each and every scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You know, the Bible goes on to say in uh, the, the book of, uh, of uh, 2 Peter chapter 3 that uh, no less a person than Peter himself talked about the writings of Paul uh, saying some of his writings, there's some things that are difficult to understand, which some twist their own destructions as they do the rest of the Scripture. In other words, Peter is putting Paul's words on a par with the scriptures, with the Old Testament scriptures. The apostle Paul himself says, do you not recognize the things that I write to you are the Lord's command? Uh, He wasn't saying, well, you know, I think I've got some pretty good takes on the Torah. Uh, You know, I, I think I'm like another rabbi and, you know, you can throw mine in kind of the you know, the gathering thing of Talmud and, you know, rabbinic mm-hmm. expression and things like, no, he's saying the Lord has spoken through me. It's not based you. on what God said. It is what it God is, is saying. what God has said. So again, Maggie, you know, laying this foundation that what we are dealing with is not man's word about God, but God's word to man. This is really important because if we understand what the Bible says about that standard, right, it leaves us one or two alternatives as we come to the word of God. Either God's word, the Bible, contains God's truth, but is not all God's truth, has errors in it, has, you know, biases in it, has human perspective in it. 
if that's the case, then we look at it and we are above Scripture. We are an authority over Scripture because we decide which verses, which parts of the Bible are inspired and which ones are not. Now, uh, I was uh, involved in a conversation on uh, Twitter earlier today where they were talking about how uh, certain Christian apologists don't even want to touch the idea of, say, a gay couple uh, using a uh, surrogate to have a child for them. Because they go, well, you know, I don't really want to go there because I just want to focus in on telling people about the resurrection of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some apologists will say, well, I don't really want to go to whether the book of Genesis is historical or not because I just want to tell people uh, about the resurrection of Jesus. I don't even really want to go to whether the Bible has errors uh, historically, errors theologically, uh, personal biases injected into it, uh, because I, I don't want to fight that battle. I just want to tell people about the resurrection of Jesus. And I understand wanting to tell people about the resurrection of Jesus. But if we, in fact, have said uh, that the very Bible that tells us about the resurrection of Jesus, the primary document that can be tested historically is not something we really want to defend. We just want to talk about some historical event, a philosophical event, if you will. It seems to me like we've come awfully close to that old analogy about the person sitting on the limb of a tree with a saw and they're sawing <laughs> uh, off their own branch. Because sooner or later that non-believer is going to go, well, why should I believe anything your Bible says about the resurrection? Well, because of this and this and this, and Josephus said this, and, and Suetonius said this, and uh, Claudius said that. Yeah. Well, suddenly you've elevated Josephus and Suetonius and Claudius above the level of Scripture. And non-believers can just shake their head and go, nah, you know, it's not that comprehensive. It's not that complete. You know, and so you've defeated yourself when you go down that path. In order to try to accommodate the non-believer, You've sold out the authority of Scripture. When we elevate ourselves above Scripture and put ourselves in charge of saying, this is true and this is not true. Cafeteria Christianity, sometimes it's called, right? Yeah, what liberals have done is taken and started deciding, oh, these are all cultural passages. Uh, There's no transcultural passages. These are all, you know... But can I suggest (laughs) something radical here? It's not just liberals that are doing it. There are individuals that we would consider on the conservative side of evangelicalism, particularly in the realm of Bible apologists Mm. that are making these kind of concessions. And it seemed to be in vogue, I guess, to begin with Genesis. Oh, well, we don't really have to believe in a young earth and, you know, literal days in Genesis chapter one. We can shoehorn evolutionism in there. Yeah, Yeah. some of the very popular YouTube channels um, have not mock, but it, it came across as mockery to me, kind of mocking the idea of inspiration. It's like, well, I don't even know what evangelicals mean by that, was the comment made by uh, Inspiring Philosophy, talking about how um, inspiration and inerrancy, it was actually inerrancy, sorry, um, that it was sort of like, uh, you know, we really don't have a basis to believe in inerrancy. What do they mean by that? And, and, and that was parroting a, a far more prominent uh, uh, apologist who says, you know, I, I don't know about inerrancy, but I just want to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, well, that shows me that you've placed yourself above Scripture, and Scripture is below you. But consider this alternative, Maggie, and this is really important as far as understanding not just the book of Revelation, but the entire Bible. Consider this other possibility. Okay, Jesus says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. He, he said that, uh, for instance, uh, not one jot or tittle will pass from the law, that is shorthand from the Old Testament, till all things are fulfilled. Uh, a, a jot refers to the smallest Hebrew letter, a yod. It looks like a little apostrophe. Mm-hmm. A tittle is the tiny line that differentiates one Hebrew letter from another, like the difference between, say, a capital F and a capital E, that le- extra little line down there, that's a tittle. Uh, what Jesus is saying is down to the crossing the T's and the dotting of the I's, the Bible is God's word. It's, you know, again, heaven and earth will pass away. My words will never pass away. Now, if we believe that and we come at the Bible from a Jesus perspective, we see Jesus, the Bible the way Jesus did, right? Uh, then suddenly we find ourselves with the scripture above us in authority and us underneath that. 
And that, I believe, can go so far uh, as far as clarifying a lot of the confusion that people get into about the Bible. Because if I'm under the authority of the Bible, if I believe that every scripture is God-breathed, as the Bible claims it to be, then when I come to the Bible, right, I'm not going to be so concerned about defending a theological position, a philosophical position. I'm not going to be concerned about, say, uh, seasoning the message of the Bible to suit the taste of the latest in vogue, uh, you know, again, cultural uh, battle that is going on. I'm going to look at the Bible and say, I'm going to let it speak. I'm not going to try to add to it or take away from it. I'm going to do my best not to read into the Bible what my biases are. I'm going to do my best to read out of the Bible. Well, how do you do that? Well, uh, I don't think it's as difficult as people make it out to be. Uh, I can remember being at a family dinner once with one of my relatives who was pretty hardcore non-Christian, and uh, my uncle said, so what are you studying in seminary? And I said, well, you know, I try to make it as simple as possible, put the cookies on the bottom shelf where the kiddies can get at them. Uh, you know, I said, well, um, I'm doing my best to be able to properly understand the message of the Bible and make it understandable to other people. I thought that was a very, you know, seeker-sensitive, user-friendly definition <laughs> of what seminary was all about. My cousin blew up. She said, how can you understand the Bible? Nobody can understand the Bible. It's like an inkblot test. You can see it in whatever you want. Oh, gosh. And I looked at her and I said, well, actually, if you take a look at the Bible, uh, like any other piece of literature, and you approach it grammatically, historically, and uh, in the context of, and literally, the kind of literature it is, uh, you can understand the message of the Bible. You know, there are some passages, obviously, that are going to be, uh, you know, uh, again, sincere believers can be at odds about the meaning of a particular passage or, you know, the interpretation of it. But as far as that, that constant dodge that we hear, well, that's just your interpretation. Well, there's a difference between what we would call exegesis and interpretation, what exegesis is, that's a $5 word for essentially just saying, this is what the text is saying. Interpretation then gets into, this is what the text means to us. Okay. So what my cousin didn't understand and what I tried to explain to my cousin is that if you apply the same questions that they give you in journalism school, as far as how to properly report on an event of the day, who, what, where, when, why, and how, you look at a particular passage, you apply those uh, particular questions to that passage. Uh, you know, you can really begin to understand and eliminate to an incredibly large degree the bias that we tend to bring to the Bible. But here's my bias, right? My bias is that it is the Word of God. My bias is that Jesus' words can be trusted. My bias is that Jesus died and rose from the dead so that I can put my faith and confidence in his take on the Bible. So if I come at the rest of the scriptures from that point of view, including the book of Revelation, right? Suddenly, uh, like you mentioned, you guys, you guys seem to make it seem like it's so clear and it's so, you know, kind of cut and dried in a sense. Well, yeah, if you go slow, and you take a look at how, say, the book of Revelation says to interpret itself. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 19, Jesus gave these instructions to John. Write the things which you have seen, that is, the glorified image of Jesus that John saw on the island of Patmos. The things which are, which are the letters to the seven churches, which were existent in John's day in the province of Asia, what we would call modern Turkey. And the things which will take place after these things, well, after what things? The things of the seven churches. And we see in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, after these things. Okay? And then suddenly, boom, we're off to the races. Mm -hmm. Now, when the book of Revelation gets symbolic, it's very good about telling us it's getting symbolic. <clears throat> Tells you the meaning of the symbol. <laughs> well, and, and like in chapter 12, 
uh, you know, John says, I saw a great sign in heaven. Well, okay, once again, we've left the here and now, the horizontal, the what's going on here on earth stuff, and suddenly we're in the spiritual realm, and then we see, you know, the woman clothed with the sun and moon underneath her, 12 stars, and but then it goes on to interpret these things, you know, begin to tell us what these things are all about, and if we don't find the interpretation in the particular passage itself, well, we can find it elsewhere. We find that the dragon, who is later identified as Satan, the serpent, and dragon of old, and all this stuff, uh, we find out who he is, and he uh, persecuted the woman who gave birth to the child who would rule with a rod of iron. Well, who's that? We go to Psalm 2, that, you know, uh, the Lord said to my Lord, you know, sit here at my right hand and take a, your, your enemies my footstool. You know, you will dash them in pieces uh, like, uh, like pottery. You know, you'll rule them with a rod of iron. Well, we look at that, we go, oh, okay. This is about Jesus being born. So even in the symbolic parts, and you know, again, maybe Adrian, you've seen these things as well, where people say, oh, the book of Revelation, it's just all this mishmash and crazy stuff and uh, outlandish symbolism and it's thrown in a wearing blender and put on puree. Who can figure it out? I just didn't want to go. Pastors won't even go near the book of Revelation. And I think that's tragic because when you slow down, use those who, what, where, when, why, and how questions, we consider the kind of literature we're looking at, we are convinced that scripture interprets scripture and and here's where the bias guard comes in maggie if i have a take on the book of revelation and i say i believe this means in this particular passage uh what's going on let's let's just take an example revelation chapter 3 and verse 20 behold i stand at the door and knock if any man hears my voice and opens the door i will come into him and dine with him and he with me okay two different ways you can look at that uh jesus is talking to the church at laodicea and it's his way of saying, you guys are so self-sufficient. You've locked me out of the church. I'm standing outside of the church and I'm knocking. Some people will say that and they'll say, well, you know, this idea about accepting Jesus into your heart or opening the door of your heart and letting him in, um, that's just not being taught here. It's about the church. Well, you know, I would take a step back and I would say, well, okay, what is the church? The church isn't a what, it's a bunch of who's. It's a group of individual human beings. It's not a uh, address. It's not 3850 North Commerce Center Drive. It's the people gather at 3850 North Commerce mm -hmm. Center Drive that make up the church, right? So first of all, we got to define it in that way. Secondly, he said, if any man, not just the people in Laodicea, not just the members of a certain congregation, if any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. He said, he will come into him. Well, we look at that and we cross-reference it with some other passages. The book of Colossians, Christ in you is the hope of glory. The spirit of Jesus does not dwell in you, you're not his, Romans chapter eight. So, okay, I look at that and I cross-reference my take on that passage with the rest of these scriptures and we can come to a conclusion about what that passage really does mean. We don't have to be in the dark about it because scripture interprets scripture. So if I come down with a take on a particular passage, Maggie, the one thing I need to be able to do is to be able to say, this is why, biblically, I take this view. Uh, doesn't mean that sincere Christians can't disagree on a particular point of view, but if a particular Christian comes to me and says, well, I don't think that's teaching that, that people can have Jesus in their hearts at all, I'd say, okay, Explain him, Explain to me what he meant, if any man. That seems pretty broad. Am I missing something here? Uh, if any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him. It didn't say any group of men, any church. It says if any man, singular. So, uh, you know, I'm very confident teaching that particular point of view on that passage. Why? Not because of my take or because, you know, I asked Jesus in my heart at a Billy Graham rally, uh, but because that's what the scripture is actually teaching. And that only works if God's the author. If it's 66 independent authors or books. 40 authors. By, 40 yeah. authors, sorry, uh, who are just writing their opinion and not inspired by God, then scripture interpreting scripture is just say, asking one guy what he thinks what the other guy is saying. And yeah. But if God is the author, then we have a 
consistent author throughout the whole Bible where scripture interpreting scripture actually makes sense. Yeah, and, and what's the evidence? You know, people say, why do you believe the Bible is God's word? Well, one of the reasons is, is that although the Bible was written over a 1500 year span on three different continents in three different languages by 40 different authors, it agrees down to the crossing the T's and the dotting the I's, the most controversial subjects known to man. To add to that, it's historically accurate. And has incredible internal consistency. Yeah, yeah. And, and so we, we put that together, and uh, it not only has that, it has the supernatural quality of predictive prophecy, uh, where we can know when certain books were written, what was written, forecasting the future, mm -hmm. and then see these things coming to pass. Quick side question, since, since we're on the book of Revelation that Maggie had, uh, the idea of a one-world government and a cash cashless society aren't specifically mentioned in the book of revelation uh, what led to the con to this connection in the first place the idea of a one world government and a cashless society well uh, a couple of passages in the book of revelation lead you to that conclusion for instance in the book of revelation uh verse 13 uh we are told about the rise of the beast coming into this world. And we are told that all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. They worshiped the beast and said, who is like the beast who is able to make war with him? Uh, notice uh, that authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. So there's your one world government there. No, there's no way of getting around that. As far as a cashless society goes, we are told regarding the Antichrist protege, the false prophet, he was given power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Well, there you see the cashless society, the idea that you have to have this mark in order to participate in commerce. Uh, you know, there's the old saying, uh, what's the golden rule? It's not do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's he who has the gold rules. If you control the economy, you control everybody. Mm. So th those would be two reasons why we would say that. Mm. Well, uh, thank you so much for tuning in. And uh, Craig, we'll get to your question tomorrow as well as uh, Adriana wanted to know, um, what does it mean uh, for uh, God of the Dead in Matthew? But that'd be that's a good question. We'll get to that tomorrow. So thanks so much, Pastor Scott, and thanks for tuning in today. We'll see you same place, same uh, time tomorrow. God bless you. Pray for Israel. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.